as I mentioned earlier during the announcements today, is Stand Sunday, which is uh, another way to uh, reference uh, nationwide ways churches can be mobilized to care for and get involved with foster care and adoption. And uh, Christian Alliance for Orphans is the organization that really tends to promote Stand Sunday uh, the most extensively. And you can get on their website and read uh, a little bit about the history of how this day began. It, and I was doing that uh, earlier this week, and it is a really interesting uh, origin story. Uh, there is a church in Texas, and Bishop Blake was uh, a, a father of two foster children and was going in to preach the second Sunday of November and completely scrapped his sermon in the middle of it and kind of had this impromptu spirit-led discussion with his church where he challenged the church and said, you know, there are 30,000 uh, children in the foster care system in the state of Texas. Who's going to stand with me to, to try to meet these needs? And he wasn't really expecting any form of a response, but then a lady in the back stood up and said, well, I will. And then the next thing he knew, the whole congregation stood up and, and said that they would, would work with him to help care for these children. And so over the last 18 years, that was in 2004, over the last 18 years, that church in particular has cared for hundreds of children uh, who have been in need and in those types of situations. And uh, that kind of is where uh, the Stand Sunday began. And one of the cool aspects to it that I was reading about is that in their community, like their little county, they have more families uh, ready to receive children that are in foster care than children that are actually in the system. So, so they've got a surplus of families, which is really the goal. And so, so that's really where it began. And, and so that's one of the reasons that we emphasize it here is that we want this to be a part of our church is we wanna challenge one another to what does it look like to stand and advocate for foster care and adoption. And we try to do this in a lot of different ways. Um, for example, we do Stand Sunday here in November. Every November we acknowledge this once a year. We do certain events like we did in the end of October where we had a UVC Sports Day, Kids Helping Kids, and we, we had an opportunity to partner with Buckner and meet those needs, which a quick update on that, our goal for UBC Sports Day was to raise $8,000 uh, because that was the amount that Buckner told us typically takes uh, them to care for one child for an entire year. So our goal was we wanna provide a year's worth of care uh, to a child and to help partner with an organization like Buckner. And I'm happy to report that uh, as of this past week, we have raised $8,240.60. So, amen. <laughs> Praise God to you all again for your generosity. Uh, but also what was so cool about that is that we always try to use that as an opportunity to encourage our kids, right? This is kids helping kids and creating that awareness. And so we, we do things like this recognition in November. We do these events like UBC Sports Day. But the reality is, is that we really want this embedded into our DNA. Like we want this to be a part of our culture of our church, not just something that we do once in a while, but really is an expression of who we are. And so I want to take the first part of the message today before we get to the scriptures to talk about how do we do that? How do we make this a part of the UBC culture? And what are the things that we've done recently to make this a part of our culture? And the first thing I would say is that we, we want to connect it to something so much larger than just events, that this really is the vision of our church. Whenever I try to talk about UBC, there, there are kind of three major categories that I tend to to talk through. Sometimes we talk about our key convictions, which are all out there in the hallway as you leave the sanctuary. Sometimes we talk about the prayer of UBC. But, but a lot of times, and most recently, we put a lot of emphasis on the vision. And the vision to me is the more tangible expression of the things that we're pursuing, uh, kind of life on life sort of ministry areas of focus. 
And when we talk about these other areas, I'm not asking you to memorize the key convictions. I don't know that you have the UBC prayer committed to memory either or to heart. You've probably heard it enough where you kind of have a sense of those things. But when it comes to the vision of our church, there are three things that I emphasize. And I would love for you to really have this embedded deep within your heart so that when you think about who we are as a church, what we're pursuing, and you start talking about our church to other people, you can say, this is what we're about. That The three words that we constantly refer to when it comes to the vision of our church is discipleship, healing, and justice. Right? If you want to know who we are, the culture of our church, we are disciples who make disciples, we are a place for healing, and we are people who love justice. And it's that third one right, that I really want to expound upon today, a people who love justice. And, and the reason that is such a focal point for us as a church is because our God is a God of justice. You look at it, verses like Isaiah 1:17. It says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Right? You, you think about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and Jesus telling his followers that uh, you should have your light shine before men, that they would see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So when we talk about being a people who love justice, that's what we say. We want to let our light shine in this darkened world. We don't want to retreat from it. We don't want to hide from it. We don't want to be afraid of it. We want to, we want to go and make a difference, right? We want to be a people who love justice. And so that's why we've always had that as part of our vision. And once I got here, the question was, well, what does that look like? Uh, because there's a lot of ways to defend the oppressed. There's a lot of different avenues to advocate for justice. And so through a lot of prayer and through a lot of uh, discussion and discernment, we ultimately found ourselves gravitating towards this focus of foster care and adoption. Now, I want to say at the front end, we do not exclusively focus on foster care and adoption, right? We feed the hungry. We work with schools. We teach English. We, we have a lot of other different ministries that we will always do but we do have a primary focus on foster care and adoption when it comes to being a people who love justice. And I want to tell you why. Okay, there's a couple of reasons. The first is that it's biblical, right? If you continue reading Isaiah 1:17, it says, take up the cause of the fatherless, right? You think about James 1:27, it tells you pure and faultless religion is to look after the orphan, right? We see this time and time again in scripture. We see in the Psalms that our God is a God who is a father to the fatherless. This is his heart, and so it should be the heart of his people. So we see it biblically, and that's a huge reason as to why we gravitated towards this one particular area of focus. Now, in addition to that, though, we see it as strategic, because when you think about a lot of the other areas of oppression or injustice or hardship or ills of society, um, when you think about a common thread and denominator that is often observable in those arenas, it often goes back to broken homes. So for example, you start thinking about incarceration, uh, human trafficking, uh, drug use, teen pregnancy, uh, dropping out of high school, all, all these different challenges that uh, folks can face and societies can encounter. One of the most frequently uh, identifiable common denominators across the board is that those things often happen from people who come from broken homes, fatherless homes. And, and so if, if we can restore families if we can provide a loving home for a child, we break the cycle, right? So it's somewhat strategic in general, in, in thinking, because if we can really take this seriously, we're not just addressing one issue, we're hopefully addressing numerous issues. So we see it as strategic. The other reason that we've embraced this is because it's a need, right? Like it's, it's an identifiable need in our community. 
Uh, we, we partner with Buckner. They office here in our, on our campus, and so we have an opportunity to have a lot of conversations with them about their world and what their needs are and, and the different statistics. And, and they shared with me kind of a state of where we are within our county, Tarrant County. Uh, and in 2021, there were 663 removals. Uh, 663 removals. That, that doesn't mean children. That just means that many homes were impacted where children had to be removed. 663. That uh, resulted in around 2,044 children in the foster care system last year. Right, so more than 2,000 children in our own county that have been impacted by that. Of those 2,000 children, 208 are awaiting adoption. So it's a real need. 208 children. Listen, I don't know the exact number of churches. It's well into the thousands. You can get on Google and say, good churches in Tarrant County, and Yelp will tell you about 240 of them. So we have far more churches here in this community that would more than be able to meet the need of these 208 children. Those statistics should not coexist. We shouldn't have more churches and still have children that need a home, right? And so, so it's an identifiable real need. And when you talk to agencies like Buckner and you talk to them and you say, what, what can we do? They say, well, we need families, right? This is a real need within our community. And so when you think about all of that, we've said, well, let's, let's take this on. Let's make this a huge part of who we are. And so let me tell you about how we've tried to really embrace that and what we're trying to build as we move forward. Um, the, the recent history for our church in terms of fighting for and advocating for foster care and adoption. About a year and a half ago is when we really kind of presented this in a more specific, tangible way. And we said last, what was April 2021, I guess, or 20, uh, yeah, 2021, I think, is when we came forward and said, hey, we would love to have 20 families or individuals come forward to advocate for foster care and adoption. And uh, we, we kind of put a survey out there. We had more than 30 people respond uh, we didn't really know exactly what that would look like, so for the first year or so, it was just having conversations. We gathered together around a couple of meals. People would pray, but a lot of cool things developed from it. We had people starting to get involved with CASA. We had new ministries uh, uh, driven by meeting people's felt needs developed, people offering their gifts of being a photographer and taking pictures and respite care volunteers. Like People started to get engaged and involved, but it was kind of nebulous and just kind of to your own volition. Well, we kept that conversation going this past April, and we said, hey, we still want to keep this goal of at least 20 folks advocating for foster care and adoption. We had more than 50 people respond this past April, saying, yes, we want to be a part of that. And so what that tells me pastorally is that the Lord is stirring within our congregation a heart and a desire for this in a very real way. And what we want to do is continue to mature and pursue that in a very thoughtful direction. We, we need clarity. Right, clarity in terms of what does it mean for this church specifically to advocate for foster care and adoption. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to give you that clarity. I want to give you a, a more specific goal and pathways to how we can engage in that endeavor. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when you talk to organizations like Buckner and others that are in this world consistently, and you say, hey, how can we help? They're going to give you a lot of different ideas, right? They can say, well, you could give us a donation. You could go on a mission trip. You could volunteer here. You could sign up as a respite care person. Like, there's a long list of things that you can do. But when you really start having the conversation and you dig deeper and you say, but what is your greatest need? They will tell you, we need families. That's what we need. We have too many children and not enough families. So if that's the greatest need, church, that's going to be our goal. We want to step in and help address that need. 
And so what I'm going to ask you to do is that starting today, uh, for the next year, but this time next year, the next stand Sunday, we will have at least three families within this congregation who will step forward and say, we're going to be available to foster care and adoption. All right, three families. And so I want you to go ahead and start praying about that. Whether or not that's you or somebody that you may know, we, we don't know their names yet, we don't know the children who are going to be impacted by it, but I want us praying intentionally and thoughtfully for those families. But I also recognize not everyone's going to feel that call. Right? Not everybody is going to be prompted in that same way to go in towards, the, in towards that specific arena of foster care and adoption. But what I also want us to do is not just say, hey, step forward. I want us to be a church that says, if you are a family that steps forward, we are going to provide a network of support around you. Right? That we're going to walk with you in this journey. And so we've been thinking, I've been having this conversation with, again, some Buckner representatives and other leaders within the church who have already kind of come forward and expressed this interest and, and we're going to build this kind of network of support. And I actually brought a slide today. That's right. I have a slide today uh, to show you what I think this can look like. Okay, so uh, just looking at the screen here for a moment, uh, if you can see that, I'll go ahead and explain it to you. But if you see those three families there in the center that step forward, they're bringing children into their home. How do we support those families? Right, moving over from the left to the right. That starts with prayer. I would love to have a team of people that are just committed to praying specifically for these families and these children and for this church, right? We have a lot of different prayer groups throughout our church, but I would love one that is completely focused and dedicated just on these particular families in this initiative. So we'd love to have a team dedicated to prayer. Uh, I would love to have a next steps team. And, and that doesn't need to be a huge team, maybe like two or three people that whenever a family comes forward and they say, okay, we feel God stirring me or stirring us to do this, what are our next steps? And that there could just be a few dedicated folks that could say, well, let me walk you through that. Let me tell you a little bit about different organizations and agencies, the difference between domestic and international and all the things you might want to consider that can just help you with some of those initial questions so that you're not trying to think through it all on your own. I'd love for us to develop a team that's built around providing emotional support, which is a hugely important aspect to supporting these families. Right, that could be a lot of different things. Maybe there's a mentoring couple that's gone through this journey before and just wants to be available to these families to say, hey, we know what you're going through, we're here for you. Maybe it's, it's folks that wanna sign up for respite care and say, hey, when that time comes, we're gonna be able to give you the rest that you need and step in and, and help alongside you. Maybe it's folks that can help figure out retreats and opportunities for those families to go through, but, but a team of folks that are gonna be focused and dedicated to providing emotional support to these families. The, third, the fourth one here, I actually want to rename. I was thinking about it on the way this morning, but the slide was already made, so it is what it is. But it, I would probably change it from church training to church education. And what I mean is that this is not so much, it's still support for the family, but it's more uh, connected to the church. That one of the things we've talked about is, are, are our leaders, are our workers, is our church congregation as a whole um, educated and trained on how to care for children that are coming from trauma, uh, trauma situations? Right? Do we have enough material and education for us to understand how do we support families and what children are going through and how do we do that well? So a team of, of people that can help educate the church a couple of times throughout the year. And then the last team there is to help provide physical needs, right? Uh, actual physical needs. I mean, you need something, then we want to be able to provide it to you. This, this last one is actually kind of a cooler part of this story because over the last year and a half where we've had this conversation, God has already stirred in a few people to start stepping into some of these teams. 
And, and there was one young couple, uh, Chance and Jordan Hutter, that many of you know, that really felt a call towards meeting and helping meet some of the physical needs of these families. And they've actually been doing this and started kind of a little sub-ministry that speaks to how we might do this. And they put together a video uh, that I wanna show you this morning so you get a, get, a, get a better picture of that particular area. So let's, let's watch this video and I'll come up and finish this thought. Every child deserves love. It's written in Psalm 127, children are a gift from the Lord. At this church, we are devoted to supporting and advocating for foster care and adoption. Whether that's through prayer, serving as a CASA worker, or providing tangible items for families in need, there's a place here for you to serve. At University Baptist Church, our goal is to serve and provide care for these families. The Love Ministry's vision is to lean into the physical needs of those families that are willing to support children through foster care and adoption. The idea is to help a family and their new child with an abundance of diapers and wipes, or maybe even a late night delivery of toiletries to a sudden placement of a child. However, we cannot make those deliveries without items. So upon the third floor here at UBC, we will have a place for those donations to be stored. And we desire to invite the church into that vision. When we serve together, the hope is to highlight the gospel and to glorify the living, breathing God. So how can you support the love ministry? Well, there's a list of needs that will be posted outside of the room on the third floor, and that same list can be found on the website. Simply put, toiletries and diapers of all ages are needed. Additionally, you can donate or tithe under the selection of the mission's budget. Every child deserves love. So it's really cool to see how they've put the, yeah, yeah. What's cool, what's cool, I had like no part in it. They just did it. And it was really, really cool to see God just prompt that within them uh, through all these conversations. And one of the things that I would say about that aspect is that they've actually had conversations with Buckner so that some of those gifts can actually go to their families in this area as well, not just reserved for this church. Um, and, and you heard them reference that if you want to know more about that, you can contact them. You can reach out to me. Uh, another good reminder that anytime you give to the World Mission Offering, uh, it's going to support a whole host of ministries, but that would be one of them, right? We have a, a section on there that is focused on local missions. And so th there are so many ways for us to mobilize in this capacity. So, so that slide that I showed you, all I'm trying to say to you today is that that's the concept, we're not there yet. We have pieces that are coming together. I wanna to build that network of support out. I wanna get some leadership in place across uh, those different arenas and those different teams. I want us to begin praying about God stirring different families to, to step forward in that capacity so that we can really live into this and make it a part of our culture and, and demonstrate we are people who love justice, right? And we're gonna take up the cause of the fatherless. And, and the last thing I'll say in terms of why I wanna do this, and this will transition us to the scripture this morning, is that it's also just a great invitation to be reminded of the gospel. Like it is the gospel. What God does is he gives us all these different moments and relationships in life that, that awakens us to his love. 
And, and you see that through the love between spouses, uh, between uh, children to parents. You see it from parents to children. You see all these different types of relationships that awaken us to the love of the Father. And when you really begin to dig into the scriptures, as we're going to see today, we see there is this language of adoption, that he, he has adopted us into his family. And so when we lean into this in a practical way, in a tangible way, it's going to create more opportunities for us to be awakened to the love of a father again and again and again. And that's what I want us to do this morning. Grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion about the spirit-filled, spirit-led life. We, we've talked all year about the renewed life. And when you get to chapter 8 in the book of Romans, we see that true renewal is coming through the Holy Spirit of God. And, and Paul has unpacked a lot of different components to this in the first few uh, verses here of chapter 8. We've talked over the last two weeks that the spirit-filled, spirit-led life is marked with freedom, right? That it, that it sets you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then last week we talked about the obligation that we have, right? That it's, it's this overwhelming sense of understanding what Jesus has done for us, that he truly has paid it all, so therefore all to him we owe. We have this obligation to live this out accordingly. And so we're gonna pick up on that progression and see how Paul leads us into this and see today that the spirit-filled, spirit-led life is also marked through the spirit of adoption. Starting in verse 14, reading through verse 17 this morning. It says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the spirit you received brought your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. All right, beautiful, beautiful passage here. And just a few things I want to highlight for us as we walk through this, uh, this discussion a little bit further in the Spirit-filled and Spirit-led life is that in verse 14, one of the first things that Paul does here is he reminds us of our identity, that we are children of God. And, and that is not an insignificant statement, right? I think for us to, to reflect again that so many times we see God referred to as Father we see that the faith community is referred to as brothers and sisters, right? We have this familial language that describes what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to, to be a child of God. And I don't want that to go uh, unappreciated or unacknowledged without greater reflection this morning because I, I don't know what your earthly experience has been like. You, you may have had a picture-perfect family uh, or it may be a highly dysfunctional family. But regardless of your earthly experience, what is so incredible is to realize that when we are in Christ, we are brought into an eternal family, a heavenly father, and we are brothers and sisters. And this familial language is so powerful, it is so remarkable, because it teaches us that we belong, right? We, we are part of something, and that should shape our identity. We are children of God. Now, in addition to that, what is, what's really cool about verse 14 is that reference there that says those who are children of God are led by the Spirit. And, and I want to accentuate that for a moment because up to this point, Paul has really talked a lot about being filled with the Spirit or having this, the Spirit, receiving the Spirit. But now he has this, this simple reference to being led by the Spirit. 
And so part of what we need to understand is that Paul is essentially saying here is that if you have the Spirit of God, you need to be led by the Spirit of God, right? That the children of God are led by his Spirit. And so a question that I have for you this morning is where is God leading you, right? Because it, it's, it's really, I think what Paul would argue, impossible for you to say you have the Spirit but not feel led by the Spirit. Now, that might mean that sometimes the Spirit is telling you to stay, sometimes he's telling you to go, sometimes he's telling you to do all these different things, but you're never stagnant, right? There's always activity. There's something that is stirring within you, even if it's hard to discern, right? There's something going on. So where is God leading you? Where is the Spirit of God leading you in your life? Is it towards reconciliation? Is the Spirit of God leading you towards repentance? Is he leading you to the nations? Is he leading you to foster and adopt? Is he leading you to your, a new job? Is he leading you to your neighbors? Like where is the Lord and the Spirit of God leading you? Right, the children of God are led by the Spirit. And we should be able to feel that, that tug and that pull. Essentially what Paul is arguing is that there is something that is happening internally. This is different than following the law. This is not some obligation to the written code. This is something that is stirring within you, that you feel within your heart, that is prompting you to live your life differently. That is the Spirit of God at work within us, and it's leading us every single day. And so we need to be in tune with it and ask ourselves, where is it leading us? Now, Paul wants to go out of his way to explain that this is so much different than the life you had before, right? This is this is not the same. He goes, you are no longer a slave to fear, right? That's essentially a way to describe the previous life, that you felt compulsion, you felt this overwhelming sense of obligation and fearfulness to follow the law, right? To follow these rules, to follow this list of do's and don'ts. That is not what you were a slave to. You are not a slave to fear, and so when we begin to ask ourselves, is the Spirit of God at work within us, is he leading us, we need to also evaluate to make sure that we don't feel this uh, bondage to fearfulness. And so I want to I ask you, again, a similar question to kind of pair with this idea of where is the Spirit leading you. What are you afraid of? Like, what are your fears? I want you to, to identify some of them, because I'll be honest, when I look at the world, and I think about different conversations I have with folks and just things that I've observed from a distance, it feels like people are really afraid, right? Sometimes that fear translates to anger, hostility, confusion, uh, isolation, right? We'll, we'll manifest it in a lot of ways, but a lot of times the source seems to be fear. We seem to be so afraid of things. Like we're afraid of the economy, we're afraid of financial security, we're, we're fearful of failure, we're fearful of being uh, found to be insignificant or left out or ridiculed. I mean, there are so many different things that people fear. We're fearful for our, our children, for our parents. We're, we're just afraid. And so I want to ask you this morning, when you think about your fears, do they dictate your life? Like, that's the real question. I think we're going to have apprehension. I think we're going to have concerns. But the real question is, are you orienting, orienting and structuring your life around these fears and these worries? Are they in control? Are you enslaved to them? Right? See, what, what the gospel teaches, and as we begin to work through this 
this understanding of what Paul is unpacking in chapter 8, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will bring life to your mortal bodies. You have this obligation as his children, not as slaves, to live accordingly. We should be some of the most fearless people on the planet. Right? Like, we're going to have apprehensions. We're going to have concerns, but we should never be slaves to fear. And the reason that Paul explains is because the Spirit Spirit of God has brought us into an adoption of sonship. The literal translation there is a spirit of adoption. (laughs) That is literally what it says in the Greek. We have been given a spirit of adoption. That's pretty remarkable, right? Like, I mean, that's a really... Uh, profound thing to grasp. And so what, what does that mean? Paul begins to unpack for us what does it mean to have this spirit of adoption? What does that begin to, to take hold of in our hearts? What does it teach us? What does it show us? And as he begins to explain this, one of the first things he says is that it teaches us to cry, Abba and Father. And that's a really, really powerful statement as well. Uh, when you think about the term Abba, right? Abba was an Aramaic term and was likely the term that Jesus used when he would pray. And he would pray to God as Father. And so his disciples had heard him say that term and and use that word. And I guarantee you at that point in time, that would have set off alarms for the Jewish leaders of the day because it was so familiar, right? It, It was so informal. It didn't carry that sense of reverence and piety to which they were accustomed to that it would have been jolting. But that's part of what Jesus was trying to communicate, right? Was that there is this intimate relationship with God. That he was Abba, Father. But what's remarkable about its use here is that apparently by Paul using it here, it seems to insinuate that the church had adopted that same use. They didn't just marvel at Jesus and think that that was a relationship that was just reserved for Jesus but that all of us now, through Christ and through his spirit, can cry out to God in that same intimate way to Abba, his Father. And so the spirit of God teaches you that you have a relationship with a loving God who sees you as his child, that he is your father. That's what the spirit teaches you. You've been adopted. The spirit testifies to your spirit that this is who you are, this is your relationship, that you are his child, right? See, what we have to recognize is that the devil is going to do everything he possibly can to convince you you don't belong to him, right? Like, the world is gonna throw every argument, every distraction, every obstacle, every hardship to convince you you don't belong to him. And so what the Spirit of God does is it comes back to you time and time again, and it testifies to your spirit, this is who you are. And it teaches you again to cry out to Abba, Father. So we have to recognize that this is the work of the Spirit. It's this constant persuading, right? The the work of sin and the law is like deceit. It leads you into a mistake. It deceives you at different moments in your weakness. The work of the Spirit is this ongoing conversation of persuasion and reminders that says, this is who you are. You have been adopted. It testifies within us of our identity and where we belong. And now once we fully understand that, we begin to draw this conclusion, right? The result of that sort of relationship, that if we are indeed children, if we are indeed adopted, then we are now heirs and co-heirs with Christ. 
Now that's, that's really remarkable. And because what Paul is doing here is he's drawing upon this really powerful language that maybe doesn't land quite as uh, strongly with us, but for the Jews at the time, there is this language about who they were as Israel, right? That, that they were God's chosen people and he had in store for them an inheritance, which was the land, right? To inherit the promised land and to become this kingdom. But now in Christ, what we see is that it's not just Israel that are chosen, it's all those who are in Christ are chosen. All of them are seen as precious to him. And that inheritance is no longer just the promised land, it's the kingdom, right? And so the expansion of this gift is remarkable. But notice the progression, right? Notice the progression. And, and this was not uncommon even in ancient Greece at this time, in, in Rome in particular, right? That it was possible for you to be a slave and be adopted by your owner so that then that owner could provide his inheritance to you. And that happened. And so think about that progression to go from slave to son to one who inherits an heir. I mean, what an amazing God that we serve. That's the progression of the gospel, that he removes us from the realm of the flesh, puts us into the kingdom of the son he loves and makes us an heir to receive this promise, to receive the kingdom, to receive the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. What a remarkable shift. And so we're called to celebrate that, understanding that's who we are. That's our identity through the spirit of adoption. If, if, you see the condition? If we join him in his sufferings so that we can also join him in his glory. Now that's where this passage gets somewhat difficult, right? Because part of what it is teaching us is that the spirit-filled, spirit-led life is not just marked by adoption. It's not just marked by freedom. It's not just marked by obligation. But sometimes the spirit-filled, spirit-led life leads you into suffering. And that's harder for us to understand, right? And a lot of times it gives us a warped understanding of suffering or of God because sometimes what can happen, and I've heard it, I've been in these conversations before, that what we'll do is we'll encounter suffering, we'll encounter hardship, and we will interpret that as meaning that we must be out of alignment with God's will, right? That obviously we did something wrong and now God is punishing us and that's where our suffering is coming from. And, and when we start to gravitate towards that idea, that really warps our understanding of not just suffering, but our understanding of God. What it seems to imply is that essentially God wants you just to have an easy life. And that gets you thinking you need to chase some form of a fantasy that's not really taught in the scriptures. Right? That somewhere along the way, God intended for you to have that American dream, right? To have the, the big house, the white picket fence, the 2.5 children, the dog, the great job, and then to live till you're in your mid to late 90s and die peacefully in your sleep. And anything short of that is God not holding up his end of the deal. And that is not what the scripture teaches. If our Savior suffered, so will we. And the Spirit of God, believe it or not, is actually going to lead us into suffering and hardship. Now, you may ask yourself, why? Why do that? And this is where I think it makes sense for us to answer that question through the lens, not so much of a child, but as a parent. Right? Because what I know is, as a dad is that I can't keep my kids from suffering. No matter how hard I try, 
they're going to experience hurt. They're going to experience pain, right? I mean, it, it's, they're gonna get sick at some point. They're gonna have their heart broken at some point. They're gonna fall down and scrape their knee. Like, it doesn't matter. I, I, can't, I can't keep it from happening. It would be a foolish endeavor for me to think that I can absolutely keep their lives immune to any sort of pain and suffering. And so my job as a parent is to prepare them for it and equip them to navigate so that when it happens, they actually learn from it and become stronger. And when they're in the midst of it, what do I do? I'm there with them, right? So that when they're in the midst of that pain and that suffering, if they want to cry, if they want to be angry, if they want to be upset, then they can come to their dad. They can cry in my arms, they can yell at me, with me, and I can hold them and I'm gonna say, I'm here with you. And that whole experience will make them stronger. And that's what I believe God sees in us. He says it, it's impossible for you to live in this broken world and not experience suffering. And that's okay, because I've suffered for you and with you. And I'm gonna walk with you in it. And in that process, you're gonna have a chance to be refined and strengthened and have a greater understanding of my love for you. If you share in my sufferings, then you will share in glory. And that's what I would hope our understanding of our role as children would constantly bring us back to. That this spirit of adoption would remind us not just how to cry out to Abba and Father, not just to remind us of who we are, but to remind us of where we're going. That even in the face of pain and difficulty and hardship, we are not on the road towards despair. We are on the road towards glory. That's what the spirit of adoption teaches us. And so we don't need to be fearful if it leads us to pain and suffering because we know that we're not on the road towards suffering, we're on the road towards glory. It's a beautiful text incredibly rich with meaning. And I pray that it really strengthens you and ministers to you today. Now, here's, here's how I'll conclude. What I know is that there are gonna be numerous moments and times where we forget this, right? Like, we are gonna go through seasons and stretches where it feels like God has completely forgotten us, he's completely distant, we don't feel like his children, we don't feel like we're worthy of his love, whatever it is. We're gonna have numerous seasons like that. And we're going to need to be reminded. I was thinking about this in light of my own role as a father, especially to my youngest son, David Wu. Um, Wu is, is uh, obviously a joy to our life. And this has been kind of a special week to our family. You know how Facebook does that little time hop? Hey, remember this photo from your memories four years ago, eight years ago, whatever? And they do that just to get you, like, emotional. Um, apparently, they did that to my wife earlier this week and they gave her a memory from four years ago and she texted me this photo. This is this photo from about four years ago uh, where we were matched with David Wooden. So we made the announcement this week in November uh, that we had a new boy coming into our family. So that's a picture that Jennifer texted me. Of course, it got me all like stirred up seeing how young my other two kids were and thinking back to that moment in time and how really uh, from there, we were matched Halloween of 2018. We announced it in November of 2018. Then in January of 2019, we flew to China and we met and welcomed David into our lives. And what's so remarkable about that is like there's a specific date where he became our son. You know what I mean? Like, like there is a specific moment and, and there are legal documents that have been signed 
uh, that the Chinese government has on hand that we have copies of that, that shows like he is legally ours, right? There's a specific moment. But I can tell you as his father and knowing his journey that that one moment is not gonna be sufficient. That he's on a road and a journey that's gonna have a lot of questions throughout probably the rest of his life. Moments where he's gonna wrestle with it, try to understand it. And when he goes through those, I'm not gonna just say, well, hey man, it's, it's official. Like, just remember that January 21st, 2019? Just go back and look at the documents. That my job as a dad is not just to rely upon that one moment, but each and every day that I get a chance to be with him when I put him down at night and I pray with him and I sing over him is to remind him, you're my son and you are loved and you're home. And to remind him of that again and again and again. And that's what the Spirit of God does for us. It knows that we're on this journey. We may have one moment in time that we can draw upon into our memories, but we're gonna need those reminders day after day after day of who we are. And the Spirit of God is gonna come in and speak to our hearts and say, run to the Father. Run to his arms, not just once, but again and again and again. Let us do that today as a church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you. And we are so grateful for the way that you call us your own. That you help us to see ourselves as your children. And we pray, God, that your spirit would once again teach us what it means to see you as Abba, as Father. And for those that maybe feel distant, God, who who have lost a sense of your love, who have forgotten the depths to which you would go for us, may we be reminded of it again. God, for all of us, may we run into your arms and experience your love and feel once again what it means to be your children. And may that experience prompt us to go and carry that same love to the world around us, that we would be awakened to not just how you love us, but how you call us to love others. We thank you, Father, for such an opportunity. We thank you for such a gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.